Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We have three readings this morning, as we always do this afternoon, uh, assigned for this 15th Sunday after Pentecost. Um, I invite you to have those scriptures in front of you. Uh, the, the James reading could be a tough one for us, uh, as he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And at the end of our reading, James says, I will show you my faith by my works. And it would seem as though James, who is the, the brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church there, uh, was putting forth works as a means of salvation. And some have taken this stand, have, have used this passage uh, in support of that sort of a stand. It's a misreading of Scripture, and it's, it's not anything really new. Uh, in fact, going back to the Reformation, in the, in the Apology, which is included in our Book of Concord, and, and the Apology is a defense of the Augsburg Confession that Melanchthon writes. Melanchthon says that the, the Roman Catholic Church, the opponents of the Reformation, taught that a person is justified in God's eyes by their love and by their works. Melanchthon notes in the Apology that those detractors say nothing about faith, but rather they condemn the idea that a person is justified solely by faith. And then being good Lutherans and children of the Reformation, we, we kind of shudder at the idea of works righteousness. And we, we tend to be a little uncomfortable when we hear words like these from James. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? It seems to contradict our confession and contradict the Apostle Paul who writes in Romans 3, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So what's going on here? I don't want to answer that question just yet. <laughs> but I want us to take a, a look at some of the other readings for today. I want to start there then with the Old Testament lesson that's paired with our reading from James. Uh, Isaiah chapter 35. And here Isaiah, uh, he is prophesying and, and he warns of coming judgment against Israel for Israel's sins. Uh, but throughout the book, if you read through, even if you just look at the chapter headings, throughout the book of Isaiah you see that uh, interspersed in those prophecies and warnings, interspersed are chapters uh, of God's love for Israel, God, God wanting Israel to come back, God saying, I will bring you back, I will restore you, giving them hope that although the nation is going to be disciplined, God's love has not gone away and there is hope. Weeping will pass away. Just before this reading, in Isaiah 35, just before this, uh, Isaiah has prophesied judgment against the nations. And then comes our reading, and there is hope here for God's people. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. 
Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. So who are those in that reading? Who are those who have an anxious heart? And I would say they are those who are hearing the prophecies of Isaiah and taking them to heart, who are repenting of their sins, who are lamenting the sin of Israel. These are the ones who hear God's word and shudder because they know that it's true. They know it's coming. They want their nation to turn. For those with an anxious heart, God says, fear not. Fear not because there will be healing and restoration and all will be set right. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Even though God's people are going to have to go through terrible times, Jerusalem besieged, Israel's warriors falling by the sword, the people subjected to atrocities by the conquering army, still God gives them hope that in the end he will vanquish their foe. He will bring them back to their own land, back to Jerusalem to rebuild it, back to the temple to restore it. And of course, back to their inheritance that they have been promised forever. And of course, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled as God brings them back out of Babylon, back to the promised land where they do rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, and rebuild the temple because God always keeps his promises. But in our reading today from Mark, in the gospel lesson, we see that Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled in even a more complete way. Isaiah's prophecy of restoration goes much farther than just bringing the people back into the land, giving them Jerusalem back or the temple. It extends to the entire human race. Israel was in captivity in Babylon. All of us are in captivity to sin, to death. God promises release to the Israelites from their captivity in Babylon, but God is also promising release to us, release to all who are burdened by sin. In Mark 7, we see that Jesus is setting things right, just as Isaiah had prophesied. Jesus touches the man's ears. He touches the man's tongue. And then suddenly ears that couldn't hear can. And a tongue that was useless can now speak the praises of God. And Jesus has come, of course, to do more than just set right a person's hearing and speaking. He's come to set us right, set our relationship with God right. He's come to die, and in so doing, to destroy death itself. He's come to give sinners dead in their trespasses and sins, resurrection, life. He's come to give people hope. And our Lord says today to those who have an anxious heart, fear not. 
And this brings us back to James. Back to faith without works is dead. God says fear not. But if it's true that our faith and by extension our salvation, if it's true that that depends on our works, then we're lost and we, we should be afraid. We all stood up here just a few minutes ago and, and confessed that by our very natures we are sinful, we are unclean. If works are the measure of our salvation, then we certainly should be afraid. So what is James saying? Well, I think it's really important to understand the context. We don't want to take James out of context, like we don't want to take any verse in the Bible out of its context. James is writing to people in a congregation where there is hypocrisy. They say that they have faith, some of these folks, but their actions don't back that up. He's writing to those who are professing to be followers of Christ, but who are very comfortable in their sin. Their sin of playing favorites, of buddying up with the wealthy and the influential and despising the poor and the meek, the unimportant. And James calls them to task, calls them to repent. He says, look what you are doing. Your actions are not the actions of thankful Christians who recognize the mercy of God and the gift of forgiveness that Christ has earned for us on the cross. You claim to have faith, James says. He says, I say to you that your faith is not a living faith. It's not a saving faith. And by that he means it is not a faith that clings to Christ as Savior. But it is a false faith, an empty faith. It's just words. True faith is an active faith. It's a work of God in us. A gift that takes hold of us and points us always to Jesus. What a living, creative, active, powerful thing is faith. That's what Luther says. He goes on and says, It is impossible for faith to stop doing good works. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. This kind of trust in and knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, and happy with regard to God and all creatures. This is what the Holy Spirit does by faith. Uh, the Lutheran Hour today, if you get a chance, listen to that or read it. Um, he's got a great illustration in there. Uh, he, he talks about, uh, Luther mentions uh, that faith is an elephant, uh, very strong and powerful. And the illustration that, that, that uh, I, I like the most out of this, he goes on, it's very interesting. But he talks about an elephant and, and uh, uh, he or someone else, I can't remember now, was in India, saw an elephant tethered outside of someone's house a chain around the ankle leading to a small peg in the ground. And he talks about how powerful the elephants are. 
they have tug of wars with, with people uh, for entertainment sometimes. A hundred men on a rope pulling against an elephant and the elephant just walks away dragging the men. They are so strong and powerful. They've been used for centuries. And yet this elephant is tethered with this little spike in the ground. And he tells the story of how that happens, that when the elephant is captured or young, they chain them to a, I don't know what tree, banyan tree or something, some big tree. And the elephant tugs and pulls and just, and works at it, but decides it cannot get away. And from then on, anytime it has a, a chain around its ankle, it thinks it's stuck. And one of the comparisons that's made then is with our faith. Is our faith something that we have tethered outside our house? There for our use, when we want it, we can speak about it, we can make use of it. But it's outside of us. It's not this living and active faith within us. And I say that if you profess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and you believe that, you have a living and active faith. And it will be alive and it will be a powerful instrument in your life. The other example, not, not a, in the Lutheran hour this morning, but the other example uh, that I want to bring up is the example of Abraham. Abraham was said to have great faith. Uh, Abraham, of course, is told to take his only son, Isaac, and take him to the mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham does it. He takes him there. He's got the wood for the sacrifice, the fire. He binds his son. He lays him on the altar. Uh, at this point, I'd be looking around, wondering, you know, are you going to let me go through with this, God? But Abraham doesn't. He takes the knife. And he raises the knife because he has such faith that God is going to uh, come through on his promise through Isaac. That was the promise, that through Isaac shall your descendants be numbered. He's going to raise Isaac from the dead, maybe. But he raises the knife to kill him, and at that point, the angel of the Lord stops Abraham. And the book of Hebrews lists this in chapter 11 in this great uh, list of the faithful, describing what faith is. Abraham is listed there. God provided, of course, the sacrifice in place of Isaac. But you see, Abraham's faith in God led to works. It's not the other way around. We don't work and work and work and that creates faith in us. But the faith that God has given us creates good works. The tree of faith bears fruit. Is your heart anxious today? <laughs> if it is, look to your faith. The gift of God that is within you, it is not directing you to look at the wind and the waves that are around you or, or the fears or worries that are within you. There are any number of events, of course, news stories in our neighborhood, in our city, our state, our nation, around the world that might tempt us to fear and to despair, to have those anxious hearts. But faith sees beyond all of those. Our living and active faith grasps and clings to Christ crucified for our sins. Looks to the one who loosed tongues and made the deaf to hear. Our faith clings to Jesus who rose from the dead 
and who promised never to leave us alone. Hebrews says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith says that in the midst of the terrors of this life, I am a citizen of heaven. God has taken hold of me and made me his child, and I am safe in his arms. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.